Hey, would you remain standing with me? And we're going to start off by reading our passage. And I just want to start by reminding us that uh, this morning, this reading of the scripture is the only inerrant thing that's going to happen. And I hope that the observations and encouragements I've prepared will be helpful. But I had 102 fever when I wrote most of this, so it may not even be coherent. So I want you to really tune into this part. I got a little dizzy at the end of the last service, so if I uh, pass out, maybe an elder be ready to come up and just keep reading this passage over and over. Uh, We're going to read from Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 1. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Colossians. Here's what he says. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now... You must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat. So a couple weeks ago, my oldest son, 10 years old, was talking to my wife, and he said, Mom, I have this feeling that I'm going to do something really special with my life. And then he kind of paused and had a moment of of self-awareness and said, you know, but I I bet that all kids probably feel like they are going to do something special with their life. And, you know, I guess that most people grow up and actually don't do anything special with their life, like you and dad. He, he said, instead of doing something special with their life, most people probably just become attorneys or whatever, and which, which is a good burn against attorneys, and I would probably find it funnier if that's not what I was doing as a profession. And so in, in light of the deep disappointment I've been to my kids, I've been thinking about recently uh, how to get better in my life and how to improve. And I've particularly been thinking about how do I form habits and patterns in my life that will that will cause me to more fully become who God has created me to be? What kind of habits can I put in my life, and how can I affect the kind of behavior change that's going to more closely align me to what God has called me to do? So as I've been thinking about that, I've been reflecting on the scriptures quite a lot, and I've also been reading in some new areas. I've been reading cognitive science and psychology, and and reading what, what have researchers found about the way the brain works and how habit formation happens. And, uh, and so I, I've been learning some, some interesting things. And one thing that I love is <clears throat> I love it when modern science catches up to ancient wisdom. I love seeing modern science empirically capture what the scriptures told us 
thousands of years ago, and that, that's what I've seen in this area. But I've learned so many things. I learned about this guy, Robert K. Merton. He was a, he's one of the, the modern founders of, of sociology. He was a professor of sociology at Columbia University, uh, most prominent in the mid-1900s. You probably don't know his name, but some of his work you're probably familiar with. So he came up with the phrase role model. He coined that term. Uh, and then another term you're probably familiar with is self-fulfilling prophecy. So a lot of his work was around this idea of self-fulfilling prophecy. Basically what it, what it says is, um, if I have a perception of myself, even if that perception is false, the very fact that I perceive it to be the case is going to yield behavior that aligns with my perception. So let me show you how this works. So if I perceive myself to be a competitive marathon runner, although there is absolutely no evidence whatsoever that I've ever trained for or run a marathon, much less competitively, yet if I believe myself to be a competitive marathon runner, I'm actually more likely to start exhibiting behavior consistent with a competitive marathon runner. And so we actually live into the kind of expectations that we have based on the way we perceive reality. So this is why it's important, for instance, uh, how we deal with kids and how we talk about kids. And so if you're in elementary education, I'm sure you're very aware of this, but we've got to be careful about how we label children. Oftentimes we're tempted to say, oh, well, that's the good kid, that's the bad kid. That's the rambunctious kid, that's the crazy kid, that's the disobedient kid, that's the liar, right? And when we put those labels on kids, what happens is they actually start living into that expectation. And so we have to be very careful to make sure that to the degree that we're labeling kids at all, we're labeling them positively and aspirationally. <clears throat> and my wife is, is very good at that. She's actually really intuitive uh, about this kind of stuff. So I've been reading some books this year, like this one, Atomic Habits. Some of you may have read it by a name James Clear. And here's one observation he makes. He says, the key to building lasting habits is focusing on creating a new identity first. Your current behaviors are simply a reflection of your current identity. What you do now is a mirror image of the type of person you believe that you are either consciously or subconsciously. Now, I had to read books to, to learn this stuff. My wife, being much smarter and more intuitive, she just kind of knows this. And so actually, without having read this stuff, she, this year for her New Year's resolutions, instead of resolving actions, like I'm going to exercise four times a week, she worded them like this. I'm going to be the kind of person who exercises four times a week. And, and actually, Modern science shows empirically that is actually more likely to yield the behavior you want simply by framing it and phrasing it that way. Now, what's, what's interesting to me is <clears throat> if we accept the premise that our identity serves as the anchor for our behavior, and our behavior ultimately is going to proceed from our identity, what's interesting and encouraging to me is that as a Christian, we don't have to try to conjure an identity. We don't have to try to create an identity to live out of because we're actually granted an identity. We're handed an identity. We see that in our passage. It's also very famously articulated in uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17. So if you went through our 52 memory verses as a church this last year, this one was on the list. So many of you may know it. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. So we are granted an identity. And our, our identity in Christ is being one who is in Christ being reborn, remade, reformed. And so the, the old man is actually put away and this new man emerges. There is spiritual regeneration and that then becomes our core identity in the Christian life and it's granted to us. It's an identity that is fully derivative. It's derived from the person and work of Jesus based on the very character of God the Father. It's not something that we have to come up with or we have to try to write out or we have to imagine. It's given to us. But the problem is 
even though that is my granted identity, one who has been remade in Christ, oftentimes my actions and my behaviors and my habits don't align with that identity. My actions and habits and behaviors actually reflect a different identity. <clears throat> and so what I want to look at is, I want to look at this passage and just see how can, what kind of insight can we get about how better to align our actions with our identity? How can we form a keystone habit of identity that will yield more faithful and fruitful living in the Christian life? So let's look at our, our passage here, verse 1. Paul starts, he says, If then you have been raised with Christ. Let's just pause at that comma. <clears throat> have been raised with Christ. First of all, that's passive voice. That's not active voice. Right? Which means it's something that happened to you, not something you did. You have been raised with Christ. It's not that... You saw Jesus getting up and you said, oh, oh, you're going to get up? Okay, well, I'll get up too. You didn't rise with Christ. You have been raised with Christ, which means that God acted on you to bring about new life in you. <clears throat> and what Paul is saying is this is your identity. Your identity, if you are in Christ, if you've bowed your knee to Jesus, if you've trusted in him for your salvation, your identity is one who has been raised with Christ. That is who you are fundamentally. There has been an ontological change in your being such that you were dead and now you've been brought to life. You are a new creation in Christ. That's who you are. And so Paul anchors immediately everything he's about to say in this chapter to your identity, one who is new in Christ. So he says, if you've been raised in Christ, if you've trusted in Christ, you are raised with Christ. So then seek things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And so Paul says, what's your identity, Christian? Your identity is that you are reborn. You've been raised with Christ. The action that proceeds from that identity is you're to seek heavenly things and not earthly things. What you do isn't always who you are, but who you are eventually is what you do. What you do isn't always who you are, but who you are eventually is what you do. Here's what I mean. I have been granted an identity in Christ, one who has been reborn, remade, reformed, raised with Christ. And yet, if I today leave this place and start acting in a very worldly fashion, and I don't set my mind on things above, but rather I'm very concerned with things on earth, does that then negate my granted identity? Does that mean that I am not, in fact, reborn and remade in Christ. No, it doesn't mean that because what I do isn't always who I am. But ultimately, who I am is what I'm going to do because our actions proceed from our identity. And Jesus says this, doesn't he? Doesn't he say that a good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree bears bad fruit? Because ultimately, the fruit is going to reveal the root. Who you are is going to manifest itself through how you behave Having an identity alone, an objective, granted identity, that's not necessarily enough to drive our behavior and our habit formation and our change because it's not just enough to have an identity. You have to be aware of that identity. You have to be living out of that identity. That has to be your primary adopted identity. Let me give you an example. Let's say, for instance, that, I, that I'm an heir to a great fortune. I've got an uncle that I didn't know about, and he's a billionaire, and I'm the heir apparent, I'm named as well, when he dies, all of it comes to me. Now, that's, my, that's, that's an objective reality, right? He's a billionaire, I'm related, he's named me in the will, 
and I'm going to get everything, but I don't know it. it is that objective identity, reality, is that going to change the way to behave? Right? If you come to me and say, hey, Christian, I've got a need. I need $10 million, and if I just have the $10 million, I can do X, Y, and Z. I'm going to say, well, man, I would, <laughs> I would love to help you. I need $10 million too. I don't have it to give you. So I'm not going to be able to act out of this identity because that's not the identity that I'm carrying. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not accepting that as my identity. I don't even know about that, right? But now change the scenario. All of a sudden I learn that, I, that I'm now an heir to billions of dollars. And you come to me and you have a need for $10 million. Well, man, that might change the way that I behave, right? That might actually change the way that I act. It's not enough just to have the identity. We have to be aware of that identity. It has to be an experienced identity. And this is what Paul is saying here. This is why he continues to remind us in this passage. Look at verse 5. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And so he says, look, your identity is one who's raised, so set your minds on things above. So go ahead and put to death the earthly things. And he goes through a list of things. And he says, look, this, this, is, how, this, this is how you used to behave. When you used to have this old identity of one who was dead in sin, now you're alive in Christ. The stuff that you did when you were dead in sin, you got to put that away. Put that to death. And so he goes through this list. Verse 7, he says, In those things you too once walked. You used to walk that way when that was your identity. Skip to verse 10. He says, But now you're being renewed in knowledge after the image of your creator. Now you're being renewed in knowledge actually made into the conformity of the image of your creator. Verse 11, he says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slaver-free, but Christ is all and is in all. W- what is your identity, Christian? Your identity is one who has been raised with Christ. Your identity is that you've been changed so that the way that you used to walk is no longer how you should walk because you are now different. He says, now you've been renewed in knowledge after the image of your creator. You're being sanctified. You're being conformed to the very image of Christ. The things that you used to think were your primary identity, where you were born, your race, your ethnicity, your gender, your education, your job, your net worth, what you do for hobbies, whether you have a family, all those things that you used to consider your primary identity. He says, listen, there's no differentiation in these things because Christ is all and is in all. If you are in Christ, your primary identity now is one who is in Christ. So all those other things about you, all those other things that comprise layers of your identity, components of who you are, those things are not primary. Those things are secondary. And so Paul is anchoring the actions that we're called to, he's anchoring them in the identity that we've been given. So he says, your identity is you are renewed in, the, in knowledge after the image of God. You've become a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, actions that flow from that identity, stop sexual immorality, immorality don't, don't be impure. Give up godless passion, evil desire. He says, in these things you once walked. I love the language of, uh, that the New Testament uses in several places about walking. Right? He says, hey, look, you used to walk that way. That walk used to make sense for you based on your old identity. A few years ago, I was playing basketball, and I busted my ankle really bad. And, and so I was on crutches for, for several weeks. And then I was on one of those, those little scooters, right, where you put, like, one knee up, and you're, and you're kind of pushing yourself around. I was on that for a while. It took about 18 months for my ankle to heal. Now, while I was busted up, I was walking with a limp. This is how, I mean, I couldn't help it, right? This is how I was walking. I was having to favor the ankle. 
But now, that's several years ago, I'm healed. So now I walk with a normal stride, and it would be weird and awkward and inappropriate if I continued to hobble around even though I've been healed. And Paul says, look, that's how you used to walk when that was your identity. When you were dead in sin, that's how you walked no longer. He says, look, you, you dropped 150 pounds. The wardrobe that you used to wear doesn't fit you anymore. You've got to put those clothes in the garage sale. Those, those are not befitting of you any longer because you've been changed. Look at verse 12. He shifts now. So he says, look, you need to put some things away, some old things that don't fit you anymore. Now I'm going to tell you about some new things that are befitting of your actual identity in Christ. He says, put on then, comma, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Before he even gets into the list of what he wants you to put on, what does he remind us of? Our identity. Hey, I want you to put on some things. Wait, 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 hold on. Before I tell you what they are, let me just remind you of who you are. You are God's chosen, holy and beloved. Therefore, since that's your anchored identity, the actions that should proceed from that are these. Be compassionate, kind, humble, meek, and patient. Your identity is that you're chosen by God, holy and beloved. The action that proceeds are these things that I'm telling you. Now, we have to be careful. There's a danger because if we ever try to live the righteousness of Jesus without the resources of Jesus, we get into a very dangerous place for a couple reasons. One, that's what the Pharisees did, right? Trying to justify ourselves by being good enough. That's what religion teaches us to do. Intuitively, that's what we think this story must be about. It must be the case that if God exists and heaven exists, it must be the case that I've got to be good enough to get there, right? I've got to earn my way there. I mean, that's, that's somewhat intuitive in the human heart. And the Bible says that, that way is folly. You will never get there. You will never be good enough. You will never be able to perfectly work out these things that God is calling you to. Listen, LeBron James is a great basketball player. I could aspire to be good like LeBron James. I could go get a replica jersey and have number 23 on my back, and I could go work on fadeaway jump shots 12 hours a day. I will never, ever perform at the level that LeBron James does because I don't have the resources of LeBron James. I'm 5'9", he's 6'9". I'm never going to play above the rim, right? It's not going to happen. And so if we try to live out the righteousness of Jesus without the resources of Jesus, A, we're going to fail, and B, to the degree that... He, to the degree that we even succeed a little bit, even if we sort of get into a rhythm or we start to convince people, hey, you know what? Yeah, that guy does walk the walk. Man, that guy is pretty pure. Man, that guy really does know his stuff. That guy really is kind. To the degree that that stuff's based on our performance and our behavior, God isn't even pleased with it because it's rooted in pride. And so what Paul says is, listen, I want you to put on these things. I'm going to put on these attributes based in who you are. You are holy and beloved, God's chosen one. And then verse 13, it says, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. It says, listen, Christian, you know, who you're, you know what your identity is? You're one who's forgiven. The action that proceeds from that identity is that you're to forgive. Forgiveness is tremendously difficult. Forgiveness is tremendously difficult. And the more that we've been aggrieved, the more that we've been hurt, the more serious the injuries we've received, the harder it is to forgive because our heart is bent towards justice. And if the primary label that I'm wearing, if the primary identity that I adopt is one who's been victimized, hurt, wronged, 
then it becomes almost impossible to forgive. If instead, the primary label and identity that I accept is one who's been forgiven, then forgiveness flows from that identity. What, what kind of things does a healthy person do? A healthy person exercises regularly. A healthy person makes good food choices. What kind of things does a creative person do? A creative person creates great art. They come up with good stories. What kind of things does a forgiven person do? A forgiven person forgives. So what Paul's saying here, he's saying, listen, I'm not just, I'm not just saddling you with a long list of things that you're to go do. I'm not just taking a whole bucket of moral imperatives and saying, stop doing that, start doing this, get your act together, change your habits, be better. He's saying, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you what God has called you to. I'm going to tell you about the glorious life in Christ that God has called you to. I'm going to lay out for you what behavior looks like in the kingdom of God and what your life should look like if you want to be living a life that follows Jesus. But, but what I want to do is I just want to remind you who you are. I want to remind you who you are because... On one hand, your action is going to flow from your identity. If you're confused about who you are, if you've adopted a label or an identity that isn't primarily one that says that I am beloved and holy and chosen and remade and reformed in the image of Christ, then your behavior isn't going to flow from that identity. So I want to remind you who you are because I want, I want it to be that everything you do in response to the mercy of God, everything you do in response to the mercy of God should come from who you are because of the mercy of God. So he says over and over and over, I'm going to remind you who you are. I'm going to remind you who you are. I'm going to remind you who you are. In the course of 13 verses, I'm going to stop four times to remind you who you are because it's so easy to forget. Because every day when you wake up, the world is putting labels on you. And you're wanting to adopt labels. And you're wanting to adopt identities. And you're wanting to say things like, man, you know who I am? I'm an entrepreneur. You know who I am? I'm a big deal. You know who I am? I'm not good enough. You know who I am? I'm an attorney, or what my son would call a failure. <laughs> you know who I am? I'm a father. You know who I am? I'm a grandparent. Listen, if those are your primary identity, then your primary actions are going to be based out of that identity. There, there can be labels that are good. Right? It, it can, it's good to be a grandparent. It's good to be a mother. Those are great labels, but those are not your primary label. Those are not your primary identity. And the primary purpose in our life is to glorify God in all things, to live out the commandments of God. And so Paul's saying, listen, if that's what you want to do, if that's what you want to be about, if you want to live the Christian life in a faithful and fruitful way, you've got to know who you are. And so I'm going to remind you again and again. And so listen, a lot of us put time and effort in, try to, in trying to form spiritual disciplines. Hey, I'm going to read my Bible every day. I'm going to pray regularly. I'm going to gather with the church weekly to worship and take communion and listen to the scriptures read aloud. Those are all really good things. Those are imperative things to our spiritual formation. But even more foundational than that, is that we have a habit of identity, of knowing who we are. Because without being grounded and rooted in a true identity based in what God has done for us, then all of those things can become acts that we're trying to perform 
rather than it being the natural outgrowth of who we are. Ultimately, when we reflect on who we are, when we reflect on the identity that God has given us, what we're really doing is not reflecting even on who we are, but on who God is. Because our identity is derivative, which means that it's not that I'm chosen because I was good. It's not that I'm loved because I was lovable. I'm chosen and loved because God is good and because he's loving. And so we we have to reflect on, on that. Which ultimately just, what it does is it just points our, our eyes and our minds to reflecting on the very character of God. It just causes us daily to embrace, first and foremost, the goodness of God, the righteousness of God. So actually what it does is it causes us to, to take our own labels and our own identities and to say, you know what, those are sick, I'm going to put those aside. Those are about me. And you know who's not the most important person? Me. The most important thing, of course, in all creation is God himself. And so that, that's ultimately what... Paul's trying to do is he's trying to draw our minds to things above. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, but rather on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, the Father. The more that we, the more that we reflect and the more that we saturate ourselves in who God is and what he's done for us, the more quickly our sanctification moves, the more quickly we become conformed to the likeness of Jesus We don't become like Jesus just by trying hard to be like Jesus. We become like Jesus by spending time with Jesus, by reflecting on who God is, by allowing the very Spirit of God to minister to our heart in the quiet and secret places. In 1967, there was a a guy named Doug Nicholas who had moved from America to India. And this was about the same time, by the way, that Merton was publishing on um, self-fulfilling prophecy. So Merton's in New York City doing academic work on self-fulfilling prophecy. Doug Nicholas moves from America to India to be an evangelist and to carry the gospel to that continent. And he's fairly new in his time there. He hasn't learned the language yet, and he he actually contracts tuberculosis. And so he gets put into a sanitarium for a few months where he's receiving medical treatment. And it's a huge ward with a lot of other uh, Indians who have tuberculosis. Now... He doesn't speak the language, so he can't actually talk to anyone, but he has a bunch of booklets and tracts that are in their native language, and he starts trying to distribute them to the folks who are on beds next to him and the doctors and nurses, and he says that everyone in the hospital uniformly refused. They said, I, I, I don't want your literature. I don't want to read that stuff. Right? I mean, they're speaking their own language. Uh, they're refusing, right? So he's not able to, to pass out any of these booklets. He says he wakes up one morning at 2 a.m. in a horrible coughing fit, and he looks over and he realizes there's an old man on a cot next to him who is struggling to get up. So he kind of inches up to the edge of the cot and he tries to stand up, but he's too weak. And so he collapses back on his bed and he said he thought he heard the man just softly crying. He didn't know what was going on, but he awoke the next morning to a putrid stench. And it became quickly obvious what had happened that night. The man was trying to get out of bed to get to the laboratory to relieve himself and he, couldn't, he wasn't strong enough to get up. He said everyone in the ward was so disgusted by the smell and so angry at this man that they started hurling insults at him. And they started shouting angrily at him. Even the nurses who were charged with cleaning up and caring for him came over. said they were treating him roughly and one nurse even slapped him. said the man curled up into a ball and just started weeping out of shame. The next morning... He woke up again at two, coughing, and saw the same thing. The man was trying to get to the edge of his cot, tried to stand up, couldn't get up, fell back down on the bed and was crying. 
Doug said, look, I, I have uh, a significant aversion to bathroom stuff. I have no desire to get involved with this guy. But I went over to him and I put my hand on his shoulder and he said the, the guy's eyes opened with total fear. He said he, he just smiled at him, tried to comfort him, picked him up under his arms, carried the man to the bathroom, which there was no indoor plumbing really. It was just a, it was just a small closet with a hole in the floor. And he, he physically supported the guy so that he could position himself over the hole to relieve himself. When he was done, he had to pick the man up entirely and carry him back to his bed. He said the man was very frail and light because of the sickness and old age. So he carries him back to the bed and lays the man on his cot. He said the man kept his arm around Doug's neck and leaned up and just kissed him on the cheek. Doug went back to bed. And Doug awoke the next morning to a, another patient in the hospital had brought Doug a cup of hot tea and motioned for Doug to, to give him one of his tracks. He was saying, hey, here's the tea I'm giving you as a gift of thanks for what you did last night, and I, I want one of your tracks. And so Doug handed him a track. He says, the sun continued to rose. Several other patients came by asking for booklets. He said, during the course of the day, doctors and nurses started asking for booklets. He said, a few weeks later, an evangelist came through the area. The evangelist spoke the, the native language and shared with Doug that that after having received the booklet, several people there had received Christ and placed their trust in him. And as I read that story of Doug, I just thought to myself, you know, I wonder what kind of identity you have to embrace to be willing to get up at 2 a.m. and carry a stranger to a laboratory and hold him over a hole in the ground. Because if I'm Doug and I'm in that place, probably what I'm thinking is, you know what, you know what my identity is? I'm a, I'm a victim of tuberculosis. I'm sick. I'm here to receive care. You know what my identity is? I'm an evangelist, so I've got these booklets I'm trying to pass out. That's my job here. My job here isn't to carry this guy to the bathroom. My job isn't to, to clean this guy up. Right? That, I, I really don't want any part of that. I mean, to be honest with you, as a dad of four young kids, sometimes when, when my own kids get sick, I try to pretend like I don't wake up when I hear them throwing up and hopes that my wife will get up. <laughs> right? I mean, that is my job, and I, I don't even want to do it. So... I'm just thinking, like, what kind of identity must it take to compel someone into that action? But I know the answer. The answer is an identity that says, you know who you are, Doug? Is you were one who was dead in sin. You, you were in the grave. You had made a mess of yourself. And someone else who was strong enough came and picked you up and carried you to life. You didn't rise with Christ, you were raised with Christ. And if that's your identity, Doug, then what kind of action flows from that identity? What does a forgiven person do? A forgiven person forgives. What does a healed person do? They look to heal. What does a person who's been remade in the image of God do? They seek to help others figure out what it means to be remade into the image of God. Now, I want my life to look like Doug's time in that sanitarium. I want my life to look like that. And often it doesn't. Partly because so many times I accept the wrong label and the wrong identity. And I start my day and I start my week and I continue my day and I continue my week with labels and identities that are not the right one. They may be okay. Hey, being a father is a good label. That's a way better label and identity to carry than, say, being an addicted gambler. That would be a worse identity and label to accept and behave out of, right? 
But that's not the primary identity. That's not the best identity. And what Paul's saying is, listen, Christian, I'm going to remind you again and again and again who you are. What you do ultimately is going to proceed from who you are. Who you are this morning, if you've trusted in Christ, is you are reborn, remade, resurrected with Christ. Full of hope, full of life, not because of anything you've done, because what's been done for you. Now listen, if this morning, if, that, if that's not your identity, Paul starts this passage, says, if then you've been raised with Christ, if you're going, hey, you know what? But I haven't been raised with Christ. That's not my identity. Then listen, here's the action for you today. It's to, it's to say a simple prayer of faith and to recognize and to confess Man, I have not lived according to the, the moral imperatives of this passage. This list of things that I'm supposed to do does not describe me. And many of the things that the Bible says I'm not supposed to do, that reflects a lot of my life. And if you've never confessed that before and put your hope solely in Jesus for forgiveness, then today is the day for you to do that. And if you already have done that, then here's my encouragement. I would implore you today to adopt a habit of identity. That bef- when you wake up before you open your computer, look at LinkedIn for the professional world to remind you of how insufficient you are, how you didn't have the latest raise, that your business wasn't the most successful one that popped off this week, before you open Facebook to be reminded that your family isn't as happy as someone else's or Instagram to see that someone else had a better vacation than you or whatever the labels are, right, that, that you're tempted to adopt every day instead to say, you know what, the primary identity for me is one who's been raised with Christ, and I'm going to live out of that identity by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm grateful to you this morning that in my very weakness and insufficiency, that you've loved me and that you've saved me by the work of Jesus. And God, I'm so grateful to be gathered with the church this morning because This room is full of brothers and sisters who share that same testimony. That story is true for them too. That we were lost in our sin and you sought us by your love and you found us. And so God, we thank you and we praise you for that. And God, thank you for giving us a better identity than we could have ever imagined or achieved on our own. And God, thank you for giving us your spirit to empower us to live out of that identity. And God, I'm, I'm very grateful that instead of just giving us a hard list of things to do and not do, that instead you have simply made us a new people. You've made us a new creation in Christ. And by the gift of your Holy Spirit, you've actually empowered us so that we can do these things. Moreover, that we can desire to do these things, which we never would have desired on our own. And so God, I'm just full of gratitude to you this morning. And I ask that as we leave this place, that you would speak clearly to us about who we are truly, who we've been made and remade in Christ. Father, as we move into a time of communion, I ask that you would use these elements, the bread and the juice, to remind us of all that was required to win for us this new identity, the very broken body of Christ on the cross and his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.